welcome to the Millennial Rocket, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, a writer and editor in Los Angeles, and I am joined by my two wonderful co-hosts. I'm Hui Chen Buya, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed, and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. Ugh. But I believe Aang can save the world. Do 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 do. <laughs> Cue Avatar The Last Airbender music because, yes, we are doing an episode on Avatar The Last Airbender, the Nickelodeon series that ran for three seasons and was created by Brian Konitsko and Michael Dante DiMartino. It is honestly one of the best animated shows of all time. And uh, it tells a story of a world in which there are four nations, all somewhat influenced and inspired by East Asian cultures, um, and follows a 12-year-old airbender named Aang, who is the last, who is the Avatar, which is an all-powerful reincarnated individual who has powers of all four elements and must save the world from the Fire Nation, who has conquered who's attempting to conquer the rest of the nations. So this is a series that it started airing in 2005. uh, It's finished airing in 2008. Uh, It spun off with another series, uh, The Legend of Korra, which ran from 2012 to 2014, um, and has a a live-action film that we do not speak of because uh, there is no war in bossing, say, but a new live action series is actually coming to Netflix soon. It was announced back in September 2018 with the original creators on board and hopefully a non-whitewashed cast. But this is a series that we all dearly, dearly love and uh, refer back to time and again. I recently talked about it in in an Avatar, uh, a Rise of Skywalker article, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here talking about Avatar The Last Airbender and why it's great, why we love it, and why it still stands the test of time today. So this is actually um, an episode topic that was requested by Willoughby because he's doing a Avatar The Last Airbender rewatch, or he just finished one, I think. Right, Willoughby? I, I did. It was during Rise of Skywalker weekend because I wanted to uh, sort of like kind of distance myself from the online discourse of the Rise of Skywalker uh, premiere. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm going to, uh, see what my friends Aang and Katara and Zuko and Sokka are up to, um, and it turns out they were, uh, saving, and Toph, and they were saving the world, that's what they were doing. Um, yeah, Avatar, The Last Airbender, uh, not to be confused with James Cameron's Avatar. <laughs> this uh, came out first. We, this came out first. Ironically enough, though, the, the Avatar movie, the Last Airbender movie couldn't use the word Avatar because James Cameron got to that first. Um, Okay, why don't we, we're going to, I guess we're going to talk about our thoughts on the show as a whole. Uh, We're going to break it down because I like what we do for our movie reviews with like characters we love, uh, plot and theme. Um, This show is chock full of all of that. So why don't we get into it? Uh, Anya. 
do you want to talk about your love of Avatar, The Last Airbender? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I will say um, it's a shame, but I've only watched the the series once all the way through. I've been meaning to do a rewatch. Um, but God, there's so much content in the world. Um, and between new stuff and trying to sit down to watch old stuff, it has just not happened yet. Um, I really want it to happen because uh, it is one of the best TV shows, animated or otherwise, that I have ever watched. Um, it is it is smart and it's moving and it's funny and its storytelling is so tight and profound. Um, I first watched it in college after, you know, recommendations from so many people around me, and I fell in love with it. Um, we'll get into characters, but I just want to say, you know, shout out to my boy Sokka. He is he is my boy for life. Um, and I just, I find it to be just an incredibly powerful uh, story. And I loved... Uh, the follow-up, uh, Legend of Korra, just as much. Um, it, we're going to talk less about it, but I just wanted to give a shout-out to it because while it had some messier storytelling moments uh, that Avatar didn't, um, I found Korra to be just as powerful and moving. Um, and especially, you know, for me, I was going to say one day I'll stop talking about queer representation, but I, I won't because <laughs> it's so important. Um, but yeah, don't really do that. <laughs> the relationship between Korra and Asami really means a lot to me. Um, and I thought it was done really beautifully. And so Korra holds a very special place in my heart that Avatar doesn't. While I think Avatar would be better show, Korra just gave me something really special um, at a time when I needed it. So I just also really love Korra. I just wanted to mention that. Um, and also Tenzin is the fucking best. He he's amazing. He's, he's the best. Um, but yes, Avatar. Animated, live action, I don't care. Avatar is one of the best shows to have ever been on the small screen. Yeah, ever. I agree. One of the best TV shows of all time. Yeah. No qualifications. Just one of the best TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go next. Uh, because I'm going to say some things that might be a little bit controversial to some of these Star Wars lovers. Uh, a couple of weeks oh. ago... <laughs> <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I tweeted that uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is a better Star Wars than Star Wars. And I kind of stand by it, especially because Rise of the Skywalker kind of fudged the landing, whereas Avatar The Last Airbender has You should that. stand by it, HT. Yeah. It is the truth. It is the truth. But, well, the funny thing is that um, I actually stumbled upon Avatar The Last Airbender before I ever watched any Star Wars films. I came to the Star Wars films a little late. I watched all of them in high school. But I stumbled upon Avatar Last Airbender late one night um, at my parents' beach house. Uh, and that's because that's the only place where I was able to watch cable because I didn't grow up with cable. And I couldn't sleep one night, so I would turn on the TV, and it was on Nickelodeon. And an episode of Avatar Last Airbender was airing. Uh, I think it was a, a rerun, but it was still in like the first season that the, that the show was airing. Um, and it was the the storm and uh i was really captivated by this episode, what episode to come in on. i know wow, I was like, what is the show it's fantastic it's moving it's gripping it's riveting it tells so much in, in a 20 minute span um and has like some of the best character development i've seen in like a 20 minute span and um I essentially was hooked from then on and watched the uh, the rest the earlier episodes and just uh, was able to and 
was watching the show as it was airing. I somehow managed to like get my hands on episodes from then on. And um, this was a uh, this is a series that when I compare it to to Star Wars, we try to get people to to watch it. Uh, it has very similar elements. It has that hero's journey, and it takes all of the sort of east cult east cultural and eastern mysticism that is a subtext in Star Wars and makes it into text. And that's what I find so exciting and so pleasing about Avatar Last Airbender because, you know, it's a show that is created by white creators, um, but it's something, it's done in like a very anime type style and does, it has a lot of homage to anime as well as a, a very, um, you know, respectful homage to the Eastern cultures that they pull inspiration from. Like for example, every every nation in the in the um, in the show, uh, the Fire Nation, the Earth tribe, the Earth Kingdom, the Water Tribe, and the Air Nomads uh, have a sort of real life uh, basis. A lot of the Fire Nation is very inspired by Japanese um, architecture as well as their history and their sort of their uh, imperialist history as well. A lot of the Earth Kingdom is inspired by Chinese and Korean culture. Air nomads are very Tibetan. Water tribes, a lot of Polynesian um, and Inuit um, sort of inspiration as well. And they put that into every aspect of the show, not only like the basic uh, world building, but the fight fighting style too. Like one of the unique things about Avatar Last Airbender is that they, their fighting is that they are able to control the elements and the martial arts style are all based off of some form of real martial arts, which was something that was I was always really enamored with. But it tells a very basic, you know, hero's journey role in that there is a protagonist, his group of his group of friends who are trying to defeat this one big evil, and he goes through a journey of reluctant reluctantly accepting this burden and um, changing and growing as this, the journey goes on and becoming like worthy of finally go, beating um, going up against this you know great empire and Mark Hamill's there <laughs> and Mark Hamill's there Mark Hamill playing the villain of all things too and doing his best villain one of his best villain voices I mean I was gonna say he has some experience playing villains mm-hmm yeah, he's definitely I, I de- he, he's definitely there purposefully as sort of like an homage to Star Wars because he's playing the evil dad. Mm-hmm. But one thing I find really fast, and like there's also elements of uh, the Force, you know, that is in Star Wars is being very rooted in sort of chi, which is something that's very essential in the Avatar, the Last Airbender lore as well. And how chi is the, what we draw on to, or what the characters draw on to like, be able to bend and everything like that so there's a lot of parallels too but i think avatar is so much is a lot tighter and the characters are just so well written and complex and their arcs are amazing and uh it's balance of comedy and um gravity as well as just like the redemption story that we see in one of the villains at the beginning of the series and my favorite character ever zuko i love him my favorite boy it's zuko uh, Avatar just pulls it off so well and just it's so beautifully perfectly tightly written with you know some of the most beautiful animation that we've seen in American TV um, so it's just uh, it's a series that is really dear to my heart and I adore and will go back over and over again because I love the characters so much and um, they have 
like such like one of my favorite things about Avatar: Last Airbender that I think puts it over Korra, its spinoff, is the the tightness, uh, the tight knit nature of the group, and how they really are just like a perfect uh, harmony of different personalities and different um, uh, motivations and different backstories that really all come together and make one perfect team. And uh, it's just, uh, it's a perfect show, guys. And uh, has some, you know, blends all of those Western and samurai elements in a way that Star Wars does as well, but in a way that, like, is really just so perfectly matched with the aesthetic and the the cultural um, influences of this show. (sighs) I love it. And um, I've uh, followed it ever since I'd stumbled upon it that one time. And and it's just funny, too, like sometimes seeing Star Wars and seeing like things that I feel like they could have that remind me a lot of Avatar, like with the Rise of Skywalker. I'm sorry I keep talking about Star Wars, but... um, with like Rise of Skywalker's beginning and like Rey trying to keep get in touch with the last of the Jedi is very in line with like Avatar line and uh, the reincarnated um, like long line of people who are they get in touch with before. So it's just um it's it's just uh, interesting to me that like this is a show that is often written off as a children's show but has I feel like so much influence on a lot of other shows as well. But um, I love it. Avatar: The Last Airbender, perfect show. And uh, yeah, so sorry for knocking on your favorite franchise a little bit, Willoughby, but uh, I, I, do, I do love Star Wars, not as much as I love Avatar The Last Airbender, but I do want to know what your thoughts are on Avatar The Last Airbender. Well, they don't have tax roots, midichlorians, or pod racing, so... That's true. What's there to even talk about? <laughs> Just kidding, I love Avatar The Last Airbender, it's one of my favorite shows. Um... HT, you're actually the one who kind of convinced me to, to give it a shot back in college. Was I the one who, um, did I also give you the, the whole, like, uh, ele- elevator pitch of it's Star Wars, but actually Asian? You probably did. <laughs> I, I, it's been a while, but I, but I believe, uh, I believe you sort of told me to watch it without, like, the, like, I, I hadn't seen the movie, but, mm-hmm. like, that was one of the reasons I was sort of putting it off was because the movie was so bad. Um, just sort of another... We do not another speak conti- of the movie. Continu- right. Another continuing thread of me uh, sort of disregarding a, a franchise because of its poor movie adaptation. And then both of you, Anya and HD, convinced me to go back and read the source material. And it uh, turns out I love it. Uh, case in point, Percy Jackson, his Dark Materials... Avatar: The Last Airbender. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot of bad adaptations of TV show of of like properties that are very beloved. Um, that going back, it uh, turns out they're great. So yeah, but I mean, this was back in 2011 or 12. So it's been a, it's been quite a while. Um, but I recently rewatched it, so it's fresh in my mind. And I just want to say that it does the the hero's journey so well. I think it executes the story that they want to tell so perfectly uh characters have such great growth from where they begin Sokka is like a borderline sexist and even though he's like he's a child so like his thoughts are not fully formed yet but as as he as he continues to grow and learn and fall in love and just learn about the world he he you know is no longer like that at the beginning uh, at the end, uh, Toph is great. She's great representation for disabilities in TV show. She's able to do everyone, everything that the rest of the cast can, if not better. 
um, Aang is such a great character because he's got you know the 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 weight of the world on his shoulders, but he still has a smile on his face, which is sort of a really you know great character trait. Katara is so perfect, like she's so great. She's like very uh, loving, but also stern, and she like knows how to like take care of business. She also has like a dark side. She's got an anger to her, but and but she's, she's very able passionate. To sort of, she's very passionate. She's able to balance that, um, and she also has. What I've come around to is a great relationship with Zuko, Prince of the Air of the Fire Nation. Zutara. Um, when I first watched the show, I, when I first watched the show, I really wasn't sort of in on that because I didn't really like. I don't know. I wasn't really super into the enemies to lovers trope. Um, but as I've grown and matured and have uh, heard heard the the um. Uh, the, the facts, I should say, <laughs> and I, I firmly believe that uh, Zutara, as the, the ship name sh- is, uh, should have been Kanan. Um, Hold on, are and, we gonna and... have a fucking ship war in this episode? We, Do you I, remember the ship well, wars from back then? Oh, I remember, and I'm just saying that both Zuko and Katara ended up with the correct people. Oh, they ended up with eight so correct. I don't people. like. That Aang basically got the girl at the end as a prize, and I don't enjoy that whole sort of dynamic. Although, and like, much. yeah, and I just think that their relationship, their dynamic has always been very sibling-like, but I understand that he has a crush on her, but I don't think that she, I mean, like... I actually care less about well, Aang and Katara, but I love Zuko and Mai so much. Like, I love her, and I love her with Zuko. Like, them as a couple, I... I adore the two of them. I like Mai, but I think it was just them being like, let's put the two emo kids together. Yeah. I got so much more from them. No. I would like to get, I would like to, I I would like to get into these conversations. uh, But I, but I want to say before, before we move on to that, um, I I think uh, Suki is underrated uh, as a character. I think she's great. Um, Also, uh, my, my girlfriend and I discovered that our relationship is pretty much Sokka and Suki. Uh, we are. She's. She. Uh, I. Uh, uh, she takes. Uh, she can. What's the phrase? Uh, Take charge. She, she takes car- charge, but also uh, uh, <laughs> takes care of my bullshit. <laughs> uh, when I'm back on my bullshit, she is very much like there to be like, "What are you doing?" Um, <laughs> But uh, and it w- it was really funny because like, they're just like jokes that are made that Sokka makes that I'm like oh I've said that in real life and she's like I know <laughs> <laughs> um, but no they're great um, and uh, w- uh, uh, we haven't even we haven't spoken very much about the villains besides Mark Hamill but uh, Azula is oh. one of the greatest villains Azula's like, of all one time of, yeah one of the greatest villains of all time and like what a fascinating female villain she is. And uh, the way that they they portray her breakdown is just like yeah. it's so intense and so uncommon for like a, what is a children's show, and uh, very complex. But yeah, keep going, Willoughby. And I like the, I just like the themes. I like the idea of you know someone who has the weight of the world on their shoulders, but is able to sort of reach back into the past to learn from mistakes. Um, and learn from from the past and sort of able to break the cycle and break the wheel um, and sort of and all, come out with a different outcome because 
the other avatars were telling i mean we're going to get into some spoiler territory here but if you haven't watched the show definitely pause the podcast go to amazon.com and order the blu-ray or order the digital copies of the seasons because they're excellent um and come back and now ang was able to find a third outcome to uh the ending ending the fire lord's reign of terror he was able to say we're not killing him we're taking the bending away and I, and I, I think wanna, that that's a powerful statement. Yeah, I want to say that how unusual and how amazing it is for a show like this that's like an action-adventure show, a lot of fighting, some killing because, like, you know, things get dire, for us to have a pacifist protagonist um, is really amazing. It's just, like, you wouldn't... It's something that is just so... I think even more powerful than, like, in a lot of the other things, the elements of the show is that... Um, this is a, sh- a show about a, a child who is forced into uh, fighting and, you know, bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders, and yet he is a pacifist and doesn't want to fight. And that is such a, a great uh, message to have in a, in a world in which so many of the children-oriented um, franchises, superhero shows are, are very, you know, violent and don't really take into account the value of human life. And um, I think Avatar the Last, Last Airbender does a great job of doing that. I agree. Um, and I like I like that Aang took charge and had his... It wasn't... He wasn't taking... I mean, he, he, he heard the advice from previous Avatars and um, uh, elected not to not to uh, go with it uh, and, and found a third option uh, instead of killing the the fire lord which was what everyone was telling him to do so i think that it was a really powerful statement and i think that yeah and 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 i think that's great um the animation is so amazing um they blend they they do a really good job of like blending some cg elements into the into the into the big finale with like the blimps um and i think they did a a, a really good job of sort of still keeping it like cell shaded along the lines of what 2d animation was there um i i also really like cora as a television show um we can get into it a little bit more but i think that it they follow they do a really good job of following up the legacies of these characters and kind of showing them that even though they're heroes they were still flawed human beings um and maybe not the greatest parents um and Core is great. Core, I think Core, the, the the arc that Core goes on is so fantastic. The 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 writers know how to write character, um, and I think that they, I have hopes that the live action show will also do that. Um, do we want to talk now about? I mean, we sort of have been talking about characters, but why don't we talk about uh, our favorite characters? Or or like you know, why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we do? Why don't we? Why, why do we do that? Let's do it. I mean, you guys know who I'm going to talk about, so... You're going to talk about Prince Zuko, heir to the Fire Lord, Prince of the Fire Nation, disgraced, dishonored, but lovable. Have you... you What do you think of Zuko? Yeah, Yeah, and have you considered more about the idea that he is more like Finn than Ben? I have considered it because at, when I was writing my article, actually, I was realizing that his um, his backstory and like his origins are very different from from Kylo Ren, 
And then from Ben Solo, because Ben comes from like. We don't play Kylo Ren in this house sorry, anymore. Sorry, sorry, Ben Solo, because Ben does come Fear from the name. like a good a good uh, family versus uh, Zuko being raised in what is ostensibly a very evil family and one that pits him against his own sibling, and one that in which he can't uh, rely on any sort of love except for the one com- coming from his mother. Um, so yes, I, I I actually like that theory a lot, but I do think that the redemption arc that they attempt with Kylo Ren is more akin to what they do with Zuko, but it it is like, it's weak because they try to like paste on that redemption when the foundation is different. So let me talk a little bit about Zuko, my boy, my sad, my angsty sad boy who just wants to be loved and just wants honor. Um... What have I said that I haven't already said? What can I say that I haven't already said about this beautiful, scarred boy who just bears all of his wounds in his soul on the on his face? Yeah, that's rough, buddy. <laughs> Waxing poetical, like I love HT when she talks about Zuko because she just gets like this, like romantic with a capital R. She gets like very Byron esque. She's like he is romantic. Like, He's a tragic hero. He's a Greek tragic hero. So Zuko, Tell me more. I got the body of Timothy Chalamet <laughs> and the heart of Lord Byron. <laughs> <laughs> My yes. two favorite things. Zuko, Prince of do Fire you Nation. Do also want to feed him? Do you also want to feed Zuko? Like, I do. do I do want to feed him. I want to give him a hug. <laughs> All right. So tell he's us. Gonna about. Drink, he's gonna drink. He's gonna drink some tea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Uncle Iroh tried, but, um, so. Iroh, oh god. Also another favorite of mine, like, honestly. Yes, Iroh is one of the best characters. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the great things about, like, I'm gonna go a little off from Zuko a little bit, is that, from, about Avatar Last Airbender, is that it takes characters and they introduce them as sort of tropey, archetypal characters. Sokka, the comic relief, Iroh, the goofy uncle, and they expand upon them and make them so much more complex and um, multifaceted than they need to be, but they are so perfectly well done um, and like beautifully done. Like you get you get to see so much more of their character unveiled as it goes on, and so much more tragedy too. But uh, they do it first, and they do it best with Zuko. So it does lead into it because um, Zuko at first is introduced as you know the bumbling villain, uh, very severe looking, very evil with his you know shaved head, his ponytail, and his scar, and um, he's you know bested time and again by the Avatar and his friends, and and done in a very humiliating way. But shortly into the first season, um, we start to see a little bit more of his backstory, and it's revealed why he's so angry and why he's so damaged. Get the capital D, um, but it's done in such a, a a nuanced and sensitive way that you really start to feel empathy for this character, despite him doing not entirely. I mean, pretty despicable things, and um, it the way that they start to see that into what he used to be versus what he is, what he was then, or what he was now, uh, is really fascinating, and the way that they pull up the parallels too to um to Aang and him like having a burden that he doesn't want to bear is just it's so great especially in the first episode I ever saw the storm where they have the parallels between uh Zuko and Aang it's just it's storytelling magic it's beautiful I get like emotional just thinking about it 
incredible. Mm-hmm. So you we... can you can tell that they planned from the start that Zuko was gonna have some sort of arc, mm-hmm. and that he wasn't just going. He he just he wasn't a mush, mustache twirling villain that was Zhao and Azula, yeah. and the Fire Lord himself. It really gives credit to how they pull off this redemption of him because they. They build from the beginning how, like, sympathetic he is. So he's not just going to be, like, you know, a sympathetic villain, but he's going to be, he's going to undergo that entire redemption. But it's not just because of, like, how sad his his childhood was and how sad his past was that he goes through this redemption. He actually has to put in the work himself. And um, they, at the beginning, you know, we find out that he had a rough childhood in which he was often pitted against his sister, Azula, the actual evil sibling, and um, how he was banished from his kingdom because his, he had uh, spoken out of turn at a war meeting in which he actually had defended the soldiers that the uh, Fire Nation was was uh, planning to dispose of and uh, was burned in honorable combat by his father and uh, was put on an impossible mission to find the Avatar who had been missing for 100 years and, um, and only then would he be able to return to his place. Um, so we learned that like really early on in the series and it gives us a new layer of understanding of Zuko and that layer keeps under, keeps expanding not just from his in his past, but in his future, in his present. And the way they pull it off is just so poetic. It's so beautiful, guys. Like as we learn more about his past and how he was sad all the time, we see him start to be challenged in his present, uh, not only by his uncle Iroh, who basically. Um, tries to teach him to be a more empathetic, more moral person, but in how he's often thrust into situations where he would be forced to make decisions that compromised his own values with what he was taught. And uh, eventually, like once he like really gets banished and is forced to live as a refugee in the Earth Kingdom, he is uh, confronted even more with the war crimes and the um, the severe consequences of the fire nation's conquest which he had always thought to be this glorious thing and the way they build that and the way that you get to see zuko sort of like his emotions churning beneath the surface is just so fantastic and you see you get to see that redemption at work and it's played out across basically three seasons of television um and then at the end, you know, there's the revelation that he was always going to be um, this turmoiled person torn between two sides because he is literally uh, the blood of two sides. Like uh, he is descended from the Avatar, and he is also descended from, you know, fire the Fire Lord that started off the the war a hundred years ago. So it's just it's such a a wonderfully modern way to approach what is a very classic sort of uh conflict of that tragic hero torn between two things and then they given an actual modern um you know angle to it a perspective to it in which he learns about how what he's how the things that the fire nation has done and what how what he has done has had actual consequences and see him work with that and try to become good and of course seeing good zuko is one of my favorite things because he tries so hard and he always fails and that's what's so endearing about him is that he does try he's a he's a person who you know never really succeeds you see even as a child he's the one who's kind of second best to azula and has to work 
to be good and be as good as he is. He's not a prodigy. And I always really adore that kind of underdog story, despite him being like the big villain at the beginning. He is an underdog. He is someone who has to work and put in that work to be better. And, uh, you know, my favorite episode of all time um, of Avatar Last Airbender is Zuko alone. And we see that perfect, like all those elements come into like that one single episode that's um, structured like, you know, your classic Western wandering Ronin type of story. And Zuko is the perfect little protagonist of that because he is trying to do good but then is struggling with his 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 uh his um legacy or no no legacy his his heir uh, things that he's inherit his his inheritance and um what he wants to do and uh at the end he is actually ostracized because of it and it's just like it's so complex and sad and i think that he is just like one of my favorite characters, not only in Avatar Last Airbender, but in TV. So that's my long-winded spiel. I, I think he is for you, too. Yeah. Zuko is actually one of the biggest reasons I want to rewatch the series is because I didn't really like Zuko when I first watched it um, because I remember just finding him boring. Um, but I, it's because, like, at that time when I first watched Avatar, I was, I was in that phase between... As a kid, I was drawn to, like, characters like Zuko, and I had a lot of sympathy for them. And then, like, in, like, my high school, college years, I was like, no, bad guys fucking suck. I have no sympathy for them. I hate them. I only like good guys. And I was, like, very much like that. And then now I've, like, accepted the fact that I do like some bad guys. Ben. Um, And um, so I feel like I would appreciate Zuko so much more now. So he's actually one of the big reasons I want to rewatch the series is because I know his arc is so good. Um, and also just because it's a great series. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I want to, I want to see the love that people have for Zuko. Um, Cause I understand it, but I think when I first watched it, I was just like, no blinders. <laughs> um, but let me tell you about my favorite character. Um, and I think it'll make a lot of sense when I tell you this. My favorite character of the Harry Potter trio is Ron Weasley. I knew it. I know it. I know exactly where you're going. Um, and I find a, I have a lot of similarities between Sokka and Ron. Um, <clears throat> and it's like that thing that Willoughby was talking about, that Sokka starts out like kind of immature and sexist, and he sticks his foot in his mouth a lot. And, you know, he's not great. He has a lot of growing up to do. And it's the same thing for Ron. Ron is racist and he has a lot of things to learn um and both of these characters i think go on really beautiful journeys in their stories and become the better people the the heroes that you know we've always known them to be that they could be um and so Sokka for me is really that character that character that i really love um you know, like the goofball who starts to understand the gravity of things and the consequences of what he says and what he believes and, um, you know, the things that he's, he's learned to believe but might not be true. Um, and I think Sokka's really wonderful. He makes me laugh. He makes me cry. I just, he makes my heart just burst because he's such a good, um, but he's even more good because he learns and because he grows and because he becomes like a better man by the end of the series and I just adore him and also because he has one of the best lines in the whole show he's like can your science explain why it rains yes yes it can 
<laughs> because science is the best. And that's another reason why I really love Sokka. Also, he's him. got a meteor sword. He does. He he does. It's pretty badass. Um, so I just really love Sokka a lot um, because of his journey and his growth. Um, and he reminds me a lot of Ron. And again, Ron's been my favorite of the trio since day one. I only I, I reread Harry Potter a couple of years ago, and I only loved Ron like more as a reread as an adult. Um, and I think the same would be said for Sokka once I rewatch the series. I like that Sokka too, even though he's like the only non-bender of the group and the one who doesn't have a lot of martial arts um, background. He is not always, he's not the useless character. Like they give him, they they establish from the beginning that he has use in this group. Right. Like he has, has like the strategic mind. And then of course he gets the sword later on, but he's always the one who like, is able to plan things, and I like that. Like they're not, he's not just like the useless comic relief, even at the beginning. Right, right. he's not the right. he's not the Zeppo. He, yeah, he, he does have value in terms of like what he contributes, and it, it it's it's a credit to his character that he you know he's at first he sees himself once he once he realizes that he's surrounded himself with all these powerful benders, you know he sort of gets down on himself about. You know, what can he contribute? Because you know he gets he he, he gets very uh, navel gazing. He's like, what can I do? And then it takes the episode w- where he gets the meteor sword to find his value, or to you know dis- to discover his own worth that we already know he has, um, which is contributing to his strategic mind and his his um, his ability to you know get shit done with a sword. Um, yeah. I think Sokka's great. Can we talk too about how the core Avatar the Last Airbender team is the perfect five-man band? So you know like that yes. TV tropes where it's like the leader, the lancer, the strongman, the heart, slash the girl, and then what was the last one? Um, I'm going to look it up. Oh, I can't remember. I'm going to look it up. But yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it, it is another thing where they t- take you know that trope and uh, they turn it into something that is uh, so much more than that. Okay, so it's uh, the leader, the lancer, the heart, the smart guy, and the big guy. And uh, what's great about Avatar is that they fall into these, you know, strict categorizations, but they also expand beyond them too. Like, uh, for example, Katara would, you know, be the heart, she's, which is always usually the lady, but she's also the lancer. She's the right-hand man of, of uh, Aang at, a lot of times too. And you see a lot of that, interchanging of roles and then Z- when Zuko joins in later he becomes he becomes a lancer he becomes a the the, the right hand man do you think both Katara and Zuko are lancers yeah you know why that's why, why they're so compatible because they're both the same role and because you know you know what makes what uh, fire and water makes steam steam hell yeah <laughs> Anya's looking at us like what with this look of of a uh, uh, and amused disbelief. I just I, yes. I love I just I just love listening to you guys sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, anyway. Um, I want to talk about Toph because she's great. Yeah. Um, I'd say I'd say Sokka is probably my favorite character and the character I relate to the most. But Anya already talked about how much. Sokka is great. So I want to give some love to Toph. Uh, we we meet her in the second season. Uh, she becomes Aang's uh, Earth 
bending teacher, but also a you know a a hero in her own right. She is the first person to ever learn metal bending, uh, which is an extension of fire bending, uh, because she is just so powerful with the force. Um, air bend, uh, with met, with earth bending. Um, she is blind. She cannot see, but she makes up for the lack of her eyesight with seeing with her feet. She really she developed a keen sense of awareness with her uh, with her with, with her feet and her earth bending. Um, and I think it's I think it was I think it's great for a character like her to exist in a show like this because it's it's it would be super easy to not have a character with a disability in a show like this. Um, Nickelodeon could have taken the, you know, the, the easy way out and just have all these characters be quote unquote perfect. And uh, what I, I, I really love that there is representation for someone with uh, a disability in, in, in a, a, a big role like Toph. Um, Toph isn't just a one-off. She becomes part of the gang. Um, and I think that, uh, that's lovely. Uh, she's so funny, and she, you know, she uh, is able to sort of like take the piss out of things, uh, and is able to basically sort of like uh, uh, kind of humble the 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 bigger personalities of the group. Uh, but I but I love their relationships with Toph. Um, Toph and Katara have a very contentious relationship, but I think that they explore that in really complex ways and to show that you know they they may not mix super well because of just how their personalities clash but they do they're they are able to work together and to sort of compromise um and to sort of learn learn to be better uh from from each other um i'm disappointed that we never really saw Toph and zuko's magical field trip of <laughs> character development that everyone else gets um and Toph even points that out in the episode that probably would have been that um but i but i do i do like that Toph is sort of, uh, she's very grounded uh, to, to, to fully put a pun there. She's a very fully grounded character um, and really powerful and really amazing. And I I, I think that she, she's a welcome addition to the group. Yeah. And she's so unlike a lot of other depictions on TV that we've seen of like blind characters, because even though at the beginning she's introduced as helpless but that's a, a way of subverting that and in, in uh revealing that she's actually incredibly sassy incredibly strong and just like a no-nonsense type of person who is overjoyed when like the depiction of her on stage is of a huge man <laughs> and she's yeah. this tiny girl and like that's what she is like in her heart is a huge man <laughs> and i love that um i love that she's able to I, I, what was I gonna say? No, that wasn't. I was gonna say that um, the like another character that sort of reminds me of Toph is Chirrut from Rogue One, uh, who is able to be blind but is you know more powerful than basically everyone else on screen. Um, through through that they both use um, a different sense, a different ability to sort of uh, just overcome overcome the adversity in their lives um and i think that's great let's talk a little bit about um cora actually because we've touched on it quite a bit and um yeah yeah, and uh i i remember watching cora and not really being as taken with it as i was with avatar last airbender but i do really like how ambitious it got especially like 
not only in terms of the world building and the way it wrangled with sort of the legacies of its of its core characters from the first series and uh you know painted them as being really human really and they had flaws and i like that they were a lot of them were bad parents um which is something that i think that a lot of media is is doing now like you see that with with last jedi especially where like luke isn't the hero that he's made up to be he's actually burdened by that legacy and um it it presents the idea that you know our heroes are fallible and we see that with legend of Korra, which also did it first um i also it's wanna... really funny I, I oh no i was just gonna say that you know uh you know avatar takes a lot of inspiration from star wars but then they did they did it first mm-hmm. in terms of the sequel the sequel trilogy they were like we got here first yeah and they did a lot of it better first um but uh i also want to point out that a lot of anime has been doing this uh sort of continuation of their like the most popular series with uh, the children of the former heroes and oh, oftentimes those heroes were bad parents so dragon ball for example is a huge example of that and like what was it uh, i think yeah goku was a bad parent um no, goku, goku goku is a bad parent goku is was not, a terrible he parent is, he loved he loves Gohan, but he is not a practical parent. Yeah, and then we've seen that really recently with uh, Naruto, which I recently learned has a sequel series called Boruto. And yep. a lot of it, you see, Naruto is a bad parent, even though it, like his one dream was to have a family and uh, he never had a father. So, But in the end, he ends up being an absentee father. I wonder if it goes back to like the, la- the actual uh, role that fathers play in Japanese society and how it... it Usually, there are a lot of absentee fathers in even uh, families that are like together still. So I wonder if anime is doing that, and Avatar is just picking up on that with with Korra. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, we see that Aang sort of favored Tenzin because he was the one Airbender in the family, yeah. uh, and uh, his and Tenzin's relationship with his brother and sister are contentious because just sort of the way that legacy works um and you know like his, his brother boomy uh was a non-bender who joins the army um and uh i forget the his sister kaya kaya uh kaya uh, yeah uh yeah kaya the sister was a waterbender um and takes after katara but Tenzin took after Aang, so Aang was just like, "Cool, we got one. <laughs> we got one. <laughs> we got one." Not to uh, not to bring Ad Astra back into this. Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> But like the idea that Ad Astra puts forward that you know, great men, um, the consequences of great men, and all the, the victims that it it has, and all the people that it 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 lets leads to suffer, especially the family of those great men, is something that I think that Korra actually does pretty well. Korra, oh, yeah. does it better? I mean, yeah, I mean, probably, yeah. yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, better um, than that so, Astra. <laughs> I like that Korra does this, I love that Korra sort of builds the world more. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it takes place, I want to say, like 50, 70 years after the events of the of the original uh, series. And so you sort of get what the world would look like and what what a city would look like and it looks it's very much like 1920s um but then also the technology that the earth kingdom is built especially in the fourth season uh it, it gets real into the genesis of Evangelion shit um 
and also some Death Star uh, um, uh, uh, parallels with um, sucking out like the life force of the big of the great tree, very very reminiscent of Rogue One stealing kyber crystals from Jeddah, because um, that's both of the super weapons that they built are basically powered by uh, ancient magic. Yeah, um, what I really like about the world building in in Korra is that they they fast forward that technology jump like so much. So like in the original Avatar, it's very much that uh, medieval or like yeah, sort of like medieval uh, feudal um, Asian territories that we see in a lot of like samurai movies and that kind of thing uh, but you do see the fire nation has made extreme advances in their technology in a lot of ways that like the japanese did right they have like they have like tanks mm-hmm. and they have blimps um airships and then by Korra they have cars yeah and they have, so it's like uh, only a matter of time and... yeah mm-hmm. it's very um, steampunk I really, it's very steampunk but also very much a con- you know sort of a an interest, you know, a consequence or something that you know we sort of look at when it when it comes to a war. Wars sort of evolve technology faster than peacetime, mm. um, and so you see sort of the consequence of something like that. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, I just want to say that I I love Korra as a protagonist because she's so unexpected she's and she's so challenging compared to what Aang is, who, despite you know being very childlike, is really likable. And what's great yes. about Korra is that she's not likable and it's so unusual too for like a female protagonist she's thorny she's brash she's mm-hmm. reckless and she's everything that like a, a female protagonist shouldn't be and she's also like incredibly strong too i like how they draw her as being really you know wide-shouldered and strong and big yeah. and she goes through such an amazing journey um i remember when, like when i first watched it i did not like horror because she was just so um Bash compared to Aang, but I grew to love her so much because she goes through such a even more painful journey than he does in terms of um, the journey of self her self journey that she goes through as well as like losing her her uh, avatar line, and um, you I think it's a much more modern sort of journey than like what we I, see with like classic hero's journey with Aang. It's something that is uh it's incredibly complex and different and. Um, the develop, but the development like that she goes through is is so phenomenal, and like the way that she, it's it's interesting too because Korra makes um, a significant step in sort of like separating her from the Avatar line, and I feel like Korra is doing a lot of that in that is trying to like separate itself from the past, like Last Jedi, <laughs> and um, building something new and build and introducing a new protagonist that's like very modern and new and uh, and unlike a lot of what we see in Avatar. And um, it does it in a way that's, like, not always successful, but it's so amazing when it pulls it off. It really is. And I, I like the differences and parallels you're drawing between Aang and Korra. I wanted to mention Aang just for a second because I really do love him. And I think the idea, it's interesting to me that you're talking about, you know, how Korra is, she's she's thorny, she's angry, she's violent. Um, whereas Aang is definitely a pacifist in you know, a world that is at war and how do you, how do you be the most powerful being in this universe, but also be a pacifist? Like, how do you, how do you reckon those two sides of you? Um, and that's part of why I really love Aang as a protagonist. And 
his own journey and the fact that, like Willoughby was saying, he finds a third option. Um, because of course he does, because he's Aang, and he's never going to want to to harm people. He's always going to want to find that third option. Um, and Korra, however, is so quick to anger and so quick to violence and so quick to lashing out. Um, and I think you're right. I think I think the gender dynamics are really fascinating. Um, you know, Aang as the male pacifist and Korra as kind of the female, like, violent type of hero. Um, but you still get the sense that Korra is a really good person at her core. Mm-hmm. You know, you see that in the relationships that she has with the characters around her. I think that's one of the best parts of Korra. It's like Avatar. Its whole cast is really wonderful. I mean, Tenzin is amazing. Kai is wonderful. Asami is one of my favorite characters in all of Avatar. Asami is my favorite character in Korra. um, And I adore her. And I love her relationship with Korra and, you know, how she helps Korra grow. And my favorite thing is she's introduced as like the romantic foil, like the, uh-huh. her, her opponents. Uh-huh. And they're, they're both crazy. They're both trying to get with Mako. And then they're like, forget Mako. Let's, be, let's just other. do it together. And it, it's done. It's done really well because I feel like they actually spent time letting Korra and Asami like develop a friendship and develop a bond. Um, and I think that's really, really beautiful. Also, I needed to... <laughs> I know I said earlier how we were like going to get into ship wars. Um, I went and found my live journal post of when I finished watching Avatar for the first time. And I need to read you this thing about shipping. Oh my God, please. <laughs> okay, Anya, set the stage. What year was this? this what was, year is it? Uh, this was Christmas Day 2011. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. Peak Tumblr okay. Okay. era. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but I was still on live journal at the okay. time. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so I re- <laughs> when this was first airing, all I remembered from it was basically all the ship wars, mostly over Zuko Katara and Aang Katara, neither of which I care for, really. <laughs> <laughs> Shipping in general was just something I was kind of blah about in uh, with this series. I enjoyed Sokka and Yue and Sokka and Suki, and I also actually really loved Zuko and Mai. I still do. Um, Mai is one of my favorite characters in the original series. Um... And I said, I was actually a little surprised they had Aang and Katara be endgame in canon because I thought they might leave it up to the audience. I do see them more as siblings. So them as a couple isn't my thing, but it isn't the worst thing in the world. <laughs> so it turns out I'm totally on the Aang and Katara sibling train. And I just like, yeah, we had was... this exact same, uh, we have the exact same I thought, know. Anya. <laughs> so I'm still, I, like, I still don't ship Zuko Katara. Because um, I really love Zuko and Mai. Um, but I definitely do see Aang and Katara more siblings. But I was just kind of like, whatever about them being a couple. Because they weren't my favorite characters anyway. So I didn't really care about the ship wars around Katara. Um, but I went and found that to see what my thoughts were on it. And it was, they're more siblings. And so I don't really care about them being a couple. So there you go. From 2011, Anya. I think uh, Katara even has almost an almost maternal um like outlook to ang especially like in the beginning when she's like always trying to comfort him and that that kind of thing sure the best thing about ang katara the couple is that it gave us tenzin very true i'm fine with the only thing i'm here for because i love tenzin their spawn (laughs) their spawn the best part of of them is yeah yeah their spawn spawn. that's true i actually Um, agree with that that's the only chance i also 
going back to Korra just a second, I like that they also deal with the spirit world um, mm-hmm. in a lot more interesting and sort of the, the 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 origins of the Avatar and like where this. I mean, they sort of do sort of quantify it in sort of I wouldn't say midichlorians, but we do get sort of an idea of where the the power of the Avatar comes from. Uh, it's more of a lost and, way, actually, you know, the way that they they uh, explain it. It's very mystic. Um, yeah. and Miyazaki-esque. Yeah, it's not scientific, I shouldn't yeah. say. But it, they definitely, like, you know, with Avatar, The Last Airbender, they don't really talk about where the Avatar spirit comes from, where all this, like, existed. Um, they, you know, they just sort of reference the fact that there's been an Avatar every generation. Um, to every generation, there's the Slayer. Uh, but now there is, uh, there, you know, Korra makes her own path. Uh, I like the themes of dealing with traumatic events. She has a great Zuko alone type episode where it's just Korra by herself dealing with her PTSD and depression um, and dealing with her depression in a way that Annihilation does in, the, in a very, very similar way. Um, yeah. I just like on this conversation uh, realized that sort of the, the physical metaphor of depression is uh, sort of the, the, the double blocking your way is used in both Korra and Annihilation. Uh, totally wow, I never like, realized that. Wow. Yeah, it just hit me while we while you guys were talking about Korra. I was like, oh yeah, Korra like fights like a a version of herself to you know or you know like is a combated with a version of herself just like Natalie Portman in Annihilation. Um, I love that. So there's that. Uh, Korra deals with the you know the the looming power of technology. Uh, and what that can do in the wrong hands, um, sort of, and also like nation building, uh, because the there's like the Republic, which is created out of part of the Earth Kingdom, sort of not with the Earth Kingdom's consent, or like you know, it's very tenuous. Um, so I think that there is sort of some there's some interesting themes going on in Korra that are are definitely you know talked about, referenced in Avatar, like like with the Earth King. Um, but then Korra just sort of takes that and, and kind of uh, expands on that, which I, I really appreciate the show for doing that. I, d- I definitely agree with you guys that like the storytelling, the like the actual animation, the storytelling is not as tight as it could have been with Avatar. But I also think that Nickelode- Nickelodeon gave them a short shrift um, because Avatar was, I mean, sort of like long story short, Avatar was, uh, oh, sorry, Legend of Korra was supposed to be like a one season miniseries, but it was super popular. So they, they made more episodes. Season two is much more of like a, of like a season one longer story form, uh, storytelling. And then season three and four got the shaft in the fact that, uh, they effectively canceled Korra, uh, in season three, but they still were making season four. So they aired it on Nick.com. So you were only able to watch season four online and not on television, um, which at the time in 2013, 2014 was a lot bigger of a deal than it was now where, you know, streaming television channels is very, very, very super commonplace. Um, But, you know, Cora started on television. It started as, you know, Nickelodeon proper. And then as time went on, uh, they sort of really did it dirty in terms of its airing. Um, and they sort of offloaded Korra season four months after season three aired. So there wasn't even proper buildup time. It was sort of really bad. And plus, like, the Korra-Asami the relationship 
uh, is very, it's there, but it's also not as explicit as I think it yeah. probably would have been had they had not the constraints of Nickelodeon network television sort of like bowing to homophobes. Let's be real. Um, because it's, I mean, if you, it, it's, I wouldn't say blink and you miss it, but it, it is not as explicit as I would like it to have been. Like yeah, it have been. Sure. I can't I mean, speak today. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally do. I, that being said, like the showrunners, I remember when that when Cora ended and like, um, I forget it. I forget which showrunner if it was Brian or. I think it was Brian. They did like was... they were doing Tumblr posts. About yeah, it. I think I think it was Brian who wrote like a long like Tumblr post about Cora and Asami and how they are canon and like what their intentions were with them and it was really really wonderful and like I love that post I still like I've gone back and read it and like so I know that like the intentions behind Korra and Asami were very genuine and very good um and it's not necessarily their fault that you know they have to deal with like you know an American like uh, children's network and the constraints of that um so I think that's why like I love Korra and Asami so much is because I know that like the intention behind them was really good right and like the com the comics that have come out since then are very much yes. more explicit about the relationship which i i uh told myself when i was going to rewatch avatar that i'm going to both read the comics for the first time and also do a core rewatch and then read the core comics um so i'm excited to dive more into the ex- expanded universe of avatar the last airbender yeah. there's a uh, whole comic series th- explaining where zuko's mom went I am aware of that. I'm excited to read that. Um, are there any other themes or characters or anything else we want to stand out um, and shout out uh, specifically about the Avatar Last Airbender Korra universe? No, other than it's perfect. And it is perfect. I am excited. I'm hopeful. I'm so hopeful that the series, live action series on Netflix will be as good or even like a third as good as the animated show because I'm hoping against hope. I mean, um, the original creators are behind it and they have a great relationship with Netflix too as we've seen with their um, Netflix just like giving shows left and right to former Avatar writers like we see Voltron, uh, The Dragon Prince. Uh, I think that those are the two big ones, right? Those are the, yeah. yeah, those are the two ones. I think She-Ra probably, I know... I think maybe some writers from Avatar are on that show, but they're not show running it. Um, yeah, so like they I definitely forget. have a good relationship with Netflix, who I'm sure will give them like all the money they need to do justice by this. Yeah. I also wonder if um, the original, like Avatar: Last Airbender, the animated series, is going to come back on Netflix before they debut the live action show because they should. Um, it's available in like other countries too on on Netflix, yeah. so I'm sure it'll bring it'll come back at some point. Um, yeah. yeah, it was on. It was on. It was. It was on Netflix. That's how I originally watched it. And then they. And then it was on Amazon Prime for a long time. And then they took it off. And now you can only buy it. You can either. You can only buy it or 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 buy the Blu-ray. Um. Or you can buy the digital versions of it. Um. And yeah, I. We haven't heard any news. I want to say about the t- the TV show, but Netflix is also super tight-lipped mm-hmm. about, you know, production on their shows. So we. I mean, they announced it in 2018, so we could be seeing stuff from um, stuff about it soon. Yeah, hopefully. we haven't seen anything you know, even like, about casting because, like, right. I thought they would have announced something by now, but maybe they're just being really True. close to the chest about it. Just like I, I think so. Yeah, I really hope they get 
actual uh, people of color in this. And what? <laughs> that would be really great. I actually made like a whole fan casting list like one night and I decided I based the casting on like what is the vague inspiration for each nation. So I had like uh, there aren't a lot of Inuit actors. So I try to go with like Polynesian or Native American for like the the water tribe but i would go for like japanese for the fire nation or like chinese for the for uh earth kingdom sometimes korean too because they have some korean influences so well yeah uh, if you want to see my whole fan casting list subscribe to us yes, <laughs> yes. but yeah i think um, um anya do you have anything else you want to add about our discussion for avatar i just think it's really beautiful um and I actually, I mentioned this a little bit before, but I think it's one of the best explorations of war mm. um, that I've seen in storytelling, especially for children, um, but even just in general. And I really like how it explores uh, the monstrosity of war and how it affects various people. Um, and so I think that's really well done. Uh, it reminds me, you know, that that the war with the fire nation lasted a hundred years and they, the, the consequence of a, of a never ending war is very apparent. Um, but it's also kind of, uh, to think about that the show aired in 2005, just for four or five years after, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And, uh, meanwhile, we're still there. Um, yeah. it's sort of, you know, it, war is not great. The never ending uh, war. You can that we can we could we could count on us to say that war is not great. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. but Avatar exactly. is great. Avatar yes. is great. Um, with I think that wraps up our discussion about Avatar: The Last Airbender, as well as its spinoff, Korra. Um, and let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you, but I need to tell you something. Hey, Willoughby, you're up. What do you really like this week? So speaking of Netflix and their uh, television department, Netflix has a new show out this month called The Circle. It is a reality show in which eight people are in a apartment by themselves, but they only have the ability to talk to a computer and cameras are everywhere and they can only interact with the other people in the apartment through social media quote-unquote social media and it is incredibly black mirror but it also is the opposite of black mirror in which that there is human connections being made and it's funny and it's somewhat heartfelt at times if you get far enough far enough into the show um but it also is sort of a uh, a commentary on how, how social media impacts our online personalities and uh, but it's also a, a reality, t- like a like a game show. So people are catfishing uh, s- to win a hundred thousand dollars, but some people are being genuine, and it's, it's sort of up to the group to figure out who's who. Are they who are who are they who they say they are? Are they not? What's up? Um, and sort of like you know, there's a, a process of elimination, and a pr- and the, the winners of like the round of like the ratings of each day are like influencers and they get to choose who goes home. It is there. It's a colorful, colorful cast of characters. Um, and it's also a sort of a, a revolving door as n- people leave, new people come in. So you see different personalities along the way. Um, it is uh, inc- incredible. 
uh, Emmy award winning, uh, Oscar, Tony, Grammy, the whole shebang. Uh, I am not really a reality TV person. Uh, I really sort of, I don't despise it, but it's just sort of not my thing. Um, my girlfriend loves watching it while she sews uh, because it's sort of fun trash to watch. Um, and so she put on The Circle because you know Netflix has been sort of marketing it on their homepage. And I really got sucked in way too quickly, way more quickly than, than I expected. Um, and we've watched all eight episodes that have been released. Netflix is doing this weird, uh, a different release schedule of releasing four episodes a week instead of uh, all at once or once a week, like is tr tradition. Um, so they're sort of doing it in batches. And uh, we watched the first batch on like the 5th of January. And then on the 8th, another batch came out and we like binged that. And we're probably going to binge the final batch of episodes that come out on Wednesday. Uh, it is enticing. It is exhilarating. It's funny. It's heartfelt. It's also trash reality TV. It's all of these things. It really is sort of uh, the best thing I've seen of the deck of the new decade. That's yeah, the circle. I could Netflix. not, I could not agree more. It's so I got to it late. Dana and I binged it uh, over Friday night and yesterday, and we're all caught up now. But after only yes. a few episodes, after only a few episodes, when it started getting to like influencers and stuff, we start like theory. We'd be like, okay, well, who are they going to block? Well, they could block this person, but then this person doesn't align. With like we're literally sitting yeah. here like on our couches, like strategizing and trying to figure out what happens and. We are such trash for this show now. And, like, the deepest relationship on on the show is, like, with a frat bro from Jersey and a a nerd from UCLA and who's, like, trying to be super... He's not really on social media. And the two of them have, like, the, the, like, the most heartfelt connection on the show. They're, like, they're like best friends. But, it is okay, amazing. but let's be real. Joey is so much better than Shibam. Like, Shibam I mean, bothers jo me. Joey is, I mean, I, I can see that. Joey is definitely my favorite, but I, I like their relationship is very wholesome their and very honest. Their relationship is wholesome, but Chewie's such a hypocrite. He's such a hypocrite. I, I can see that, but I think, um, But yeah. Joey is I, precious. I, Joey and Sammy. Uh. I just <laughs> want to say, I'm amazed just like by the journey that you guys have had, at least with Willoughby, I didn't even know you were watching Anya, but like I remember Willoughby was I I think ironically watching this or like watching it through the corner of his eye when Melissa was watching it. And now you're fully invested, and I yeah, I think that's hilarious. That's sort of and, it, and I, I I like fell into it much quicker than I expected to because like Melissa watches Vanderpump Rules, um, and those are just like trash people talking trash to each other the entire time, and like they should they should not be in like the the same room as each other. But um, and it, but like some of the so, some of it is like like reality TV at its purest in in you know, like in like how trashy it is and like I appreciate that part of it and I appreciate that people can watch it just for like background noise. Um, but I'm really not a reality TV person. But for some reason, this really this really I think it might be the the social media aspect of it all. Um, I don't know. It just it it got me. it got to me. I don't know. It got to me. It's yeah. That's amazing. I'm obsessed. I guess you might say you've come full circle. Ah. Uh, yeah. It's also based on a UK prime, uh, TV show, I think also called The Circle. It is, um, yeah. 
And this it's one themed. is supposed to be set in Chicago, but they're filming it in the UK. So, like, the Damn. American version is shot in London, but they're, like, pretending it's Chicago. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's incredible. Right. We were trying to figure out what are these landmarks, and none of it looked American. <laughs> nope, that's because none of them are American. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's no, incredible. the show is really good. It's it's fun to watch. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 an interesting concept. It's very Black Mirror-y, but it sort of takes the opposite approach to it. Melissa had a really good point where Black Mirror is sort of the is about the uh, the lack of humanity in social in technology like this, but the circle is about that humanity and what, what humans bring to social connectivity. That's actually yeah, really there sweet. There have actually been some really lovely like connections on the show. Joey and Miranda, I really Joey like and that. Miranda, I actually really love the relation, the um, conversation between Karen and Chris. Oh, and they that, were like, great. That was were, that was another that was another show. high point. Yeah, yeah, the two of them, those two couple, those two, I wouldn't say couple, those two relationships are really powerful. Yes, agreed. HT, get on this. So many shows yeah. to watch. You guys can't give me like a reality show. Okay, I have so many listen, things. Listen, but like you love Terrace House. You got to watch Terrace House. I do love Terrace you, House. Like, I, I just want you to start watching all these like reality shows because your reaction to reality American shows are the Terrace best. House. It's trashy American Terrace <laughs> House. It's because I also wax poetic about Terrace House. You want to see me wax poetic about the circle? I do. Oh, yes, memes. I do. <laughs> I want to see you wax poetic oh. about, you know, about Terrace House. You know House. what? Rebecca would like it. You and Rebecca should watch it. But yeah. on the first Actually, that, episode, that might be a good idea because we watch a lot of Chopped, and so and we get really invested in that. So maybe See, there you go. We'll put some on. There you go. It's perfect. Yeah. So the circle. That's my really like. Uh, Anya, what's yours? <laughs> Friends. Romans, countrymen. I don't know why I led with that. <laughs> I really like. Is it? Are you talking about Caesar? <laughs> no. Um. Friends, I have my number one film of 2019. I oh. I have my the the film that I think is the best of last year. Definitely going to be in the best of my whole decade. Um, Can I take a guess? Can I take please. a guess? Is it Ad Astra? Ad <laughs> Astra. It is. It's not. Um, so my favorite film of 2019. And definitely a top one of the entire decade is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a French period drama um, about queer women, made and written by queer women. Um, It is directed and written by uh, Celine Sciamma, who, um, fun fact, actually used to date one of the lead actresses of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. they're still dating. I thought they weren't. Oh, no. I don't know. I hope they are. That would be wonderful. I swore they did because they were joking that she's like his, her muse and stuff. Uh, oh my god. Well, I would hope there's I hope they're still dating, but I thought they weren't anymore. I'm looking this. Um but okay, so anyway, Portrait of Lady on Fire. It was a film that I was really highly anticipating, um, and it completely blew me away and oh, it You're right. They parted amicably sometimes before the filming of twenty of yeah, Portrait of Lady. That's, that's what I thought, yeah. But they still have a great relationship. Um which is really beautiful. So Portrait of Lady on Fire is a film that I was really like highly anticipating and I was kind of expecting it to be one of my favorite films of the year. And then I saw it and it bowled me over and it immediately took my number one spot. Um, so Portrait of Lady on Fire, as I said, is a French queer period drama. And it is about a painter um, 
Marianne, who goes to this home on the island of Brittany, which is sort of an isolated French island, um, and she is tasked with painting the portrait of this aristocratic lady, um, Eloise, uh, who is going to be marrying a man from Milan. And so Marianne is sent to paint her portrait for her future husband. Um, and the time spent together in isolation in this big house on this island by the beach, painting her portrait, uh, they end up falling in love. And it's just so beautiful. It, it, it's a movie that was kind of made for me. It's French, it's a period drama, it's queer ladies. Like, there's not much more I need in a movie. Um, but it is just a stunning, stunning film. The performances are all beautiful. The film uses absolutely no score um, and it just makes it so much more intimate and honest because you can hear all the noises that we as human beings make our little, our breaths and our, our grunts and the rustle of clothing, the sounds that we live with in our day-to-day -day lives um, since we are not accompanied by a score in real life. And it just really adds sort of this uh, rawness to the film. Um, and the film explores really fascinating topics like suicide and abortion, all while being a really lovely romance film. Um, and it just completely blew me away. You know, about two, about a third of the way through, I was like, this is going to be one of my top films of the year. You know, what is it going to be the likes of like Parasite, you know, and Little Women? Um, and then about the last half, last two thirds of the film happened. And I, I, I was blown away. I, I couldn't stop crying. I haven't shaken the feeling of the film yet. Um, I don't want to shake it. Um, it. I just felt so good. I felt so seen. Um, afterwards, I saw it at ArcLight, um, and it, well, there was a Q&A with Celine and the two lead actors. Um, unfortunately, it was done by a straight white man, and his questions were completely asinine. So the Q&A itself was kind of frustrating because the questions were dumb and so frustrating um, for the beautiful film we just watched. However, Celine especially gave some really great answers, like props to her for getting asked terrible questions and giving great answers. Um, but one of the things that she said was that she wants, you know, especially queer women to go to this film and to feel seen by this film. And I certainly did. Um, and I could not stop crying. Um, and just felt so incredibly touched. And I'm not going to shake this film for a while. It is it is stunning and my favorite of the year. And I love it so much. And I'm so sad it's not in awards conversation more. No, because cause, it is, cause France didn't nominate because... it for its... Uh... No, I know, oh, I know, because France, yeah. France did uh, Les Miserables. Yeah. But it's like Celine still could be in the conversation for Best Director. But like, she, it, yeah. Uh, like right again it's all the she should be it's one of the best directed films it just it's pure oh if any movie deserves the term like cinematic poetry it's portrait of a lady on fire absolutely absolutely i'm and, disappointed that the rest of the world won't get to see it till like february mm -hmm. i know but it doesn't come out wide release until like february 12th um the yeah. only reason i got to see it was because it they it's like for your consideration screening and I got a ticket and I was like, I don't care. I'm going to see this film before, you know, as soon as I yeah. can. 
Neon really botched the screening of it because, or the release of it, because they were definitely putting all of their campaign efforts into Parasite, which deservedly so, but then they just completely left Parasite, uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire by the wayside because, you know, France didn't didn't, uh, nominate for its best foreign language slot. It's really unfortunate because it's a stunning film. Mm Because I think it might have more, I mean, th- there's a lot of factors into Oscar contention, but like if it had a Christmas release that was wide or, you know, even just major cities, I think maybe it would be more, ha- it would probably have more popular, like a populism behind it. Yeah. Because um, I think that right now, like only, I think it had like a qualifying run for the Oscars in New York and Los Angeles and cri- on like Christmas weekend, but like DC didn't, D- DC, I don't even think had a, had a screening it's not going to be wide until February, like February, like after the Oscars. So like, I'm sad that I won't get to see it. And I like, like February is not December. And I'm like, oh no, it's like so far away from, from now, or I guess January, but nice. like, I don't know. I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited to see it, but I'm like, I'm chomping at the bit because everyone else that I, you know, I, I follow a lot of film critics and all, all, all you guys in New York and Los Angeles get to see these movies. Yeah. I saw it at New York Film Festival and it also just blew me away. It's just it's so beautiful and affecting and moving. And um, I, I, what you're saying about being seen, I think, like, is a big, is a major part of the film, too. It's like the act of seeing is in itself an act of love. And I wrote this in my, in my write-up for uh, the best uh, movies of the decade, of which Portrait of Lady, Fire is, uh, Lady on Fire is number three. Um, I said, if to be seen is to be truly loved, then Portrait of Lady on Fire is love incarnate. And I wholeheartedly <sighs> believe that. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> this movie just means so much to me. It's so good. It's so special. But yeah. But yeah, that's my really like... I'm glad you loved it so much, Anya. I was so looking forward to you seeing that because when I saw it, I was like, oh, Anya's going to love this. And it's just such a beautiful yeah. film. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, God, that last that last scene, I was sobbing. The last shot's amazing. Um, Oof. But yeah, speaking of movies, of foreign films that we love, I well, I did a big catch-up um, of films I hadn't seen leading up to my publication of my best top 10 movies of 2019 list, which you can read on slashfilm.com. I'm always going to uh, <laughs> uh, promote myself on this podcast. You can't stop it. Uh, but uh, as I was Only catching up... Only if you promote Millennium Falcon on yours. Yes. Millennium Falcon on I your, promoted on, on the last one. one because I always forget, and like this time I was like, I'm going to do it. Um, so uh, I, the last minute, like the two days before my article was due, I was able to catch Pain and Glory at one of like the two theaters that they're showing it in New York. Um, And I was really looking forward to this film because I love Pedro Almodovar films. I love how heightened his emotions are. I love how his movies always feel like a shout to the world, a shout of like some sort of emotion, desperation, love, anger, etc. And uh, Pain Glory is a shout that starts off as almost as a whisper. It's like, it's definitely his most contemplative film yet and uh, his most personal of course it's very much about him as a director and his like him being like stuck in a creative rut and uh looking back at his life and all of like his regrets and uh it's just so beautiful it filled my heart completely with love I was just so overcome with emotions by the end that I was just I was shaken like honestly in the way that you were shaken by portrait of a lady I was just so shaken by pain and glory and I absolutely loved it I think in terms of like the um the, the pattern that 2019 had of of uh, uh, 
a well-known, like renowned directors looking back at the careers with contemplative films that are like the most very calm of their like uh, filmography. I liked Pain and Glory best. Um, I I really loved The Irishman. I liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I actually I but I think that they come from that um, different perspectives. The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is just kind of you know it's it's a uh, Quentin Tarantino's hangout film, um, and it's a very you know, chill chill film with you know some some uh, 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 exceptions and then uh, Scorsese's film The Irishman is is very much a him looking at his own mortality in a way that's a little that's very melancholic and sad and while Pain and Glory does both of these things I think that it comes from it with such a, a hopeful and joyous uh, exuberant approach that I felt myself just so joyful at the end despite you know, all the hardships that he goes through and all of the regret that he lives with and I think that it's like about finding the joy in all the regrets that you have and I I absolutely was just so taken with with Pain and Glory. Antonio Banderas amazing he gives a sublime perfect performance and um he really should be in all the Oscar he, honestly he should be leading the Oscar conversations I think he gives the best performance of the year um and uh, I don't know why he isn't because it's it is kind of crazy. Is so, I haven't even I haven't even seen Pain and Glory yet. It's I'm hoping to try and see it like this week or something or sometime soon. But I don't even need to see it to know that it's incredible based on all the reviews. And just because, uh, as a filmmaker, as a collaboration between these two men, like I've always loved the work they've done together. And I've just heard this is phenomenal. I believe it. I'm already. I'm like I don't even need to see it. To say Antonio Banderas deserves Best Actor. It's a good guess. Um, question, better or worse than his performance in the Spy Kids films? Oh, I don't know. He's pretty good in the Spy Kids films, so. He is pretty good yeah. in Spy Kids. Spy Kids, underrated gem. Honestly, uh, the, like, the best, the Antonio Banderas, like, trilogy, see Spy Kids, Zorro, and Painting Glory. <laughs> or, what, make, that a, make that a quadrilogy and bring in Puss in Boots. Oh, Puss in Boots. Honestly, bless Antonio Banderas. Bless we, him. We are so lucky to have him. He's giving some of the best yes. work of his career here, and no one is paying attention to it, and I'm very mad about that. It's like, uh, how did Joaquin Phoenix win Best Actor when Antonio Banderas and Adam Driver were both sitting right there? I mean, I do love Joaquin, though, but... I love Joaquin. I think he's one of the best actors of his generation. But Agreed. I, but this is very much a case of, like, Sam Rockwell finally winning for three billboards. Well, that's the thing is, like, I love Joaquin. He's a phenomenal actor. I don't want him winning for this role. He should have won for You Are Never Really Here, a movie in which he plays a damaged man on the outliers of life, trying to figure out how what his what his role is. And, oh, hey, you know, it's not Joker. What? It's You Are Never Really Here. Wait, you mean he gives better performances in You Are Never Really Here and also her? And he should have gotten awards attention for those roles instead uh what you mean the award season likes to award actors retroactively instead of for like the individual roles that they're up for what (gasps) this is a preview for next week's episode friends when we're going to be talking about the oscars it's going to be yes right we're going to be mad probably (laughs) i mean we're not going to take it anymore (laughs) big network energy coming um but that is our episode for this week that is not about awards. Um, so if you guys want to come chat with us about Avatar Lost Endbender 
or The Legend of Korra, or things you're really liking from The Circle to Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Pain and Glory or anything else, come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenden on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye.